I think the clock's just beginning to chime, so a very warm welcome to this Sunday forum here at St. Paul's. My name is Helen O'Sullivan and I'm the chaplain here at the cathedral and on behalf of the whole cathedral community, it's my privilege to welcome our speaker this afternoon and it's a particular delight because I last saw Judy on my ordination retreat some years ago. So the Reverend Canon Judy Hurst is the diocesan missioner for the Diocese of Durham. She trained for ordination at Cramner Hall in Durham and following her curacy returned there as the director for ministerial formation. In her current role, Judy is responsible for the development of shared ministry in parishes across the Diocese of Durham, helping to support local churches as they seek to grow in spirituality, discipleship, faith, outreach and numbers. Judy is also a counsellor and spiritual director and a retreat leader and the author of Struggling to be Holy and more recently, A Kind of Sleepwalking. Would you please welcome Judy to the Sunday Forum. I'm just putting my watch there to be try and be good to the timing I've been asked to keep to. Well, many thanks for this kind invitation um, to share with you some thoughts about struggling to be holy. It's particularly challenging today for me because there is actually something called sunshine outside. I'm coming from the northeast of England. I haven't seen sunshine for so long. So it's actually a great act of love to you that I'm in here, not out there. Um, I mean, first of all, I suppose I want to warn you so that you won't be disappointed about something. Having written this book, Struggling to be Holy... I have found myself invited all over the country to talk about holiness. I need to say that the title of the book is Struggling to be Holy, and I know much more about struggling than I do about holiness, so just be warned. I think it will help you to understand where I'm coming from on this issue if I can share with you a little about how the book came to be written. Helen mentioned that I was Director of Ministerial Formation very grand title, um, at Cranmer Hall, which is the Anglican uh, Training College in Durham. Uh, in, in an Anglican Training College, you have study leave. Study leave means you write books. So quite often I was offered study leave, and I said, no, thank you very much, because I had a whole load of colleagues who were desperate to have study leave, and I absolutely hate writing, I have to tell you. Okay? So I thought, well, if I, if I don't have a study leave, I can't be made to write. And then one day the warden, who's Steve Croft, was, uh, who's now Bishop of Oxford, about to be Bishop of Oxford, I think, um, he said to me, Judy, he said, you are going to have study leave. Either you're going to have it then or then. And I found myself the proud owner of a study leave and uh, not really sure what to do with it. And then Steve Croft had been very smart because very quickly, within days, I had a phone call from Virginia Hearn, who's the, one of the commissioning editors from Darton, Longman and Todd, And she said to me, I have heard, she said, from Steve Croft that you've got a book in you. This came as rather a surprise to me. And she asked me, what is your particular area of expertise? And I was stumped. I was thinking, what is my my particular area of expertise? And uh, I thought, well, it's people. People is my area of expertise and listening to people. And quick as a flash, because she's a very smart cookie, she says, and what do you hear when you listen to people? What do you hear when you listen to people? And I said, 
um, this was with no consideration because I wasn't aware this was going to happen to me, I said, I hear that people are struggling to be holy. And that's where the title of the book came from. And I, I want to stress to you much more about, um, well, the holiness in a way than the struggling. I, I've been a counsellor, as Helen said, for 30 years. I've been a priest for over 20 years. I've sat and listened to all types of struggling that you can imagine and some you can't imagine. So that didn't really surprise me. But what surprised me was that I realised that people, the people I listened to were, were wanting to be more whole, to become their whole best selves with God, and they were struggling to do so. So that was what was interesting to me. So a meeting was planned. Now, you don't know me, but I'm a very last-minute person, but I had set aside the morning um, before the meeting at lunchtime to think about what I was going to say. I've just made myself a cup of coffee, I have my notepad and my pen, and the doorbell goes, and I find on my doorstep a very distressed young woman. Now, I know her history. I know she makes very little demand on me, certainly not unreasonable demand. So if she's there and in need, I know she has to come in. And she comes in, and we sit, and we talk, and I listen, and she cries, and the time goes, and I realize with horror that no thinking has been done. And this, this was kind of with a real sinking in my heart. So anyway, I drive off very quickly. I don't know if you know Durham, but um, there's a very large cathedral and a very large castle in the middle, and I'm driving very fast down this very bumpy cobbled road. And uh, I'm saying to myself in exasperation, um, I don't know anything about holiness. This is ridiculous. Have I got myself into a position where I'm going to have a conversation about holiness, for goodness sake? And I can only say it was as if a voice asked. I'm not prone to hearing voices, okay? But it was as if a voice asked me, so what have you just been doing? And I thought, well, driving much too fast down this cobbled road. And the voice said again, so what have you just been doing? And I was a bit blank. And then I thought, well, um, I've been sitting with somebody in pain all morning. And the voice said, isn't that something about holiness then? And I have to say to you that that absolutely stopped me in my tracks. Because it had never really occurred to me that caring for someone in need and pain was about holiness. That was just something that had never come into my mind. I suppose over the years, I'd gathered the impression that someone like me was not holy. Well, I'm not, be assured of that. Um, holiness to me was about being contained and about being controlled, about keeping silent for weeks. I had a friend at the time who was a chaplain. I don't know if Helen does this kind of thing, but he'd just gone off and done 30 days silent retreat at St. Bruno's, Bino's, Bino's in, in North Wales. And I was completely freaked out by that. So it seemed to me that was very holy, you know. So being able to be very silent for weeks, going away from people, being able to be on your own seemed to be about holiness. I thought holiness was about being serene, about being peaceful, about being wise and devout, and being endowed with extreme purity. Holiness had often seemed to be a quality which was acquired by strict discipline and effort, and the ones most likely to be successful in the Christian life, those who were rigidly self-controlled, and ordered, and who could do those things seamlessly. Those things being um, quiet and retreat, um, keeping the commandments, attending church frequently, and so on. 
However, by writing this book, it became clear to me that holiness is much less about developing self-discipline than it is about learning to entrust yourself to the God who loves you. I'm going to say that again. It became clear to me that holiness is much less about developing self-discipline than it is about learning to entrust yourself to the God who loves you. So those who think they are having success in the Christian life may actually be at biggest risk. This became clear to me um, when I was working in um, Durham at the uh, Theological College. Every year, an enthusiastic new group of ordinands would join us. Now, to get to be an ordinand, you have to jump through lots of hoops, don't you? Lots and lots of hoops. And you have to prove all sorts of capacities and skills. And so they would arrive, and they would have some established patterns of prayer and devotion. And very soon they would find that being in a theological college, with all its demands and expectations, all its different kinds of people, kind of messed up their devotional health. People got very annoyed and very upset that their disciplined and ordered approaches to God were being messed up. But I became increasingly certain over the years that God was nowhere near as anxious about this as they were. For it's too easy, isn't it, to avoid real encounter with God through religious practice. We all know that. And so these poor people had their things stripped away from them, and as the success and possibly the illusion of these structures were removed, they were left to work out their relationship with God in this new context of the theological college. The key thing, it seems to me, is about sticking at this relationship when all the external props of the established practices are removed. That is a very key thing. And so we need to look at what um, sustains us as well. In Luke's Gospel, we are told that Jesus is aiming the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee exactly at people who were complacently pleased about how they were doing in the religious life. If you recall that story. As they come to pray, the Pharisee lists his achievements, his good religious practices, if you like, his moral behavior, his fasting, and his tithing. But the tax tax collector slumps down in utter despair and defeat and says only this, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He is stripped of everything, has nothing to defend, nothing to commend him. And he says simply that, God be merciful to me, a sinner. It is to him, isn't it, rather than the Pharisee, it is with him, sorry, rather than the Pharisee with whom God can do business. If you come to God simply as you are, hiding nothing, then God will help you to become more fully yourself. The Pharisee, however, is so taken up with himself and all his commendations that there is no care for the tax collector and definitely no spare capacity for an encounter with the God whom he thinks he is addressing. So that's a very biblical example of the same thing I was talking about at Cranmer Hall. So the challenge for me then was to write reflections which were a bit different. And I came up with six different ways of growing in holiness. And they are as follows. And I I, I didn't know how to kind of condense a book into 40 minutes, so I'm going to just nod at them. 
So this is not encouraging you to buy my book, but if you're interested, you're going to have to buy the book <laughs> because I'm, I haven't got time to kind of do them all. But I thought, well, if, um, you know, silence and retreat and so on, and I don't want you to understand that I'm saying silence and retreat are bad ways, but they're my shadow ways. They're not my normal ways, okay? So I wanted to write different ways to that. So I started off by writing about dealing with our desires as a way of growing in holiness. Dealing with our desires, I didn't mean knocking our desires on the head, dealing with them in that way, but rather um, trying to uh, listen to them, trying to interact with our desires, trying to understand what they are trying to tell us. I wanted to talk about listening to our desire so that um, we could hear. I think desires are about incompleteness. They tell us for what we lack. And, and they can show us for what we yearn. And it's very important for us to listen within our own lives to that little word, little phrase, I want. What do you desire? What do you want? Now, I'm not going to ask you to tell me, even if we had time for a discussion. I didn't ask the ordinance um, at Oxford. Because actually, you know, our desires are about our dreams, aren't they? They're a very private part of ourselves. But we need to attend to them, to give them voice, to hear them, and to think about how we deal with them in a way that we can grow in holiness. So the first reflection was about dealing with our desires. The second one had to be about forgiveness. Um, I think being a counsellor and a priest, forgiveness is such a crucial, wonderful gift of the Christian life. The absolutely um, key thing that our society needs to know in many ways. And I, so I wrote about forgiveness, especially the idea that God forgives our sins in order that we can be, as the absolution says, confirmed and strengthened in all goodness. That God forgives sins in order that we can be confirmed and strengthened in goodness. You might say holiness, perhaps. That whatever little seed of goodness we can grow from our mistakes and experiences, that's what God's desired outcome is from his forgiveness. Does that make sense? So, so, so forgiveness is absolutely crucial way in which we grow in holiness. There's a whole load of stuff to say about that. I then found myself writing about success and failure. It seemed to me as I've listened to hundreds of people in my life that success and failure is a pretty pivotal thing. Well, I want to tell you that in my opinion, we don't learn much from success. I've listened to so many people, that's what I've come to conclude. I think when we have success, we just need more success. We only feel as good as our last success. It's a bit of an addictive kind of need. Okay? So success possibly doesn't teach us very much about holiness. But failure, of course, now failure, that is an excellent place for learning about holiness. It can be a very good teacher. It needn't be, of course, because it depends what you do with your failure, if you blame and moan on about it. But if you own it and think about it and confess it and deal with it, then failure can be an extremely effective way of learning about holiness. And um, I think we need to learn with our failure to come in an open-handed way to God and ask God to bless us through our failures. And then, I believe, through God's forgiveness and love, we can grow. Then I wanted to talk about friendship, 
friendship as a way of growing in holiness. Because I, I hope that it's been clear to you that from the beginning um, about holiness, I've always thought it was about not being with people and, and not saying anything. And I think probably when I reflected on my own life, that one of the ways I've most grown in holiness, in as much as I have, not making too big a claim about that, um, is to do with um, people that I have met, wonderful people that I have met and that I have encountered and that they have taught me about God and taught me about myself. I mean, in friendship, I'm talking about deep encounter, deep encounter which can lead to transformation. So being with people deeply can lead us into holiness. And there's a wonderful phrase I use in the book called hospitality of the heart. And, and I think that's a really good image. As we encounter the other, we offer them the hospitality of our heart. We, we hear them, we, we listen to them, we try and understand them. And then we find that our heart is transformed and changed because of that encounter. So as I look back at my life, I see that a great deal of my growth in holiness has been with other people. People taking the time to share with me, to listen to me, to encourage me, to enable me. And then I came to the fifth reflection and I thought, well really Judy, you cannot write a book about holiness without it having something about silence or retreat, just not possible. I spent over six months trying to write a reflection about silence and retreat, and I gave up. It's just not my thing. Other people can write that much better than me. But as I pondered the silence and retreat stuff, I thought what I can do, what I do know about, is paying attention. So we've been talking in friendship about paying attention to people. I can do that. Um, it's something about paying attention to ourselves. We'll come back to that. And it's certainly about paying attention to God, isn't it? Um, so that was the fifth uh, reflection. And we'll return to the sixth one a bit later on. After writing the reflections on different ways of growing in holiness, my commissioning editor pointed out to me that I had not actually tackled the question, but what does holiness look like? That's true. I hadn't. I've been avoiding it. So I thought I'd better put my mind to this. And at the time, I had a, a friend who was a New Testament lecturer in the theology department in Durham. And fortunately for me, he had just edited a book on holiness, and he gave me a copy. Really big, thick book. And this is no criticism of the book. This is a criticism of me. But I couldn't make head nor tail of it. So I just wasn't any wiser. I, I'm sure it was helpful to some people, but it wasn't helpful to me. So I thought to myself, now, Judy, what do you do when you're stuck? I thought, usually when I'm stuck, I ask people. I ask people to help me. I ask people's advice. So I thought, right, I'm going to ask people, who do you know who is towards holy? Obviously not completely holy, because God alone is holy. And um, if we had a whole day together, we could be doing some of this stuff together, but I'm afraid you're just going to have to listen to me for now. If, if I ask those questions, I've asked those questions all over the country in all sorts of different groups, you get certain answers. The two main answers you receive are Mother Teresa. I know Mother Teresa's interesting example of holiness because of all the agony and difficulty we know which was at the heart of that now. 
And the other name you very often get given is Desmond Tutu. And if you're in Durham City, where I live, you get given Michael Ramsey. So, so they're the names that kind of come up, and others. And I thought, well, all well and good, but they all seem a bit out of my league. A lot out of my league. I wanted people to see if, there was, if they could think of anyone who was towards holy in their ordinary ed- everyday life, you know, like an ordinary everyday person who was towards holy. Did this make any sense as a question? And I thought I'd better ask myself first. So I have to confess that I sort of sat there and I had people kind of flicking past my eyes. You know, do they feel like towards holy? Does that make any sense, you know? And, um, and it's interesting, you know, because you think, well, that person's, yeah, pretty towards holy, but he's a bit arrogant. You know, or, or, or you know what I mean? You kind of weigh them up. Um, and then I came across this lady in a church I used to attend, lady in her 80s. She kind of came across my consciousness who'd lived in the same part of Durham all her life. Not a high-profile person, but profoundly good. And I realised that she was someone who earthed God in the ordinary things of life. That she earthed God in the ordinary things of life. And I thought, yes, that's something to do with holiness. And I carried on. I was quite excited, so I found one person. And the next person I found, the first person had been a lay woman, the second person was an ordained man... Interesting enough, he had spent nearly all his ministry in the same place. Now, I'm not saying you have to stay put to become holy, but it's interesting that you can stay put and become holy. And um, so that was very exciting. And being um, sort of encouraged by my own thoughts, I started to ask groups, and again, if we had plenty of time, we could do this. So I would have asked you to think about somebody that you think is towards holy, and then get into groups and try and get some characteristics of what these people are like. And of course that works because you can choose positive characteristics or I mentioned, didn't I, that somebody went past my kind of uh, my mind, as it were, who was pretty towards holy but a bit arrogant. So you think, well, mm, so arrogance not towards holy but humble might be. You know what I mean? So, so people build up a kind of list of characteristics of holiness. And I've done this so many times and I'm always absolutely amazed that very, very similar things come out. I mean, to begin with, people think, I've no idea what she's on about, I can't think of anybody, but gradually people can, and they begin to um, share these characteristics. Now, um, sorry, can I just have a drink? I did this a few um, weeks ago for the last time, so I brought the list from last time. This is not a definitive total list. This was the list from the last time I did it, okay? And I'll read it to you. It's kind of interesting. Um, people said it, that these people who were towards holy were loving, compassionate, selfless. Funnily enough, one thing that always comes up is that they've got a great sense of humor. They make you laugh. And um, I think that's great because, you know, the media tends to do holy as kind of po-faced, really serious kind of person. That's not my experience of asking this question at all. That towards holy people have a great sense of humour and they make you laugh. Um, they're non-judgmental. This is what the list said, not my list. Honest, trustworthy. And then there's always something about this. This last group called it seamlessly themselves. People who are seamlessly themselves, at peace with themselves. That they have a passionate love of God. They're prayerful, 
They're often people who have suffered themselves quite a lot. They're genuine, they have a real inner stability, though they can be eccentric, a bit eccentric, that's quite interesting. Um, they're humble and they're wise. So, so that was one part of the list, a kind of very positive part. But I wouldn't be being um, honest with you if I didn't add the next part of their list, because these holy people are not just comfortable, lovely, kind people. There's another aspect to them when you ask people to think about them. And uh, this group that I did it with a few, few weeks ago said that the people they were thinking of were challenging. They were not doormats. They challenged you. They were not doormats. They were sometimes uncomfortable to be with because they did challenge you, you know, and that was quite awkward. They were courageous and they were passionate about justice. So do you get the idea? So there's a kind of, and, and wherever I've done it, you get a similar span of stuff. Once I did it and somebody said that um, the person they thought of was thin. Well, I have to say, and for obvious reasons, I generally hate thin people. Um, so, so I was interested, so I wasn't going to have thin in my list. But anyway, they said, no, 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 you misunderstand. Um, so it was thin, as in thin on Holy Island, Lindisfarne, or Iona. You, know, you have thin places where it's easier to get to God. They said these people were thin because when you were with them, it was easier to get to God. Does that make sense? So on those grounds alone, I allowed in thin. Okay. And also, one last thing that comes up a lot is that these people help you when you're with them to be the best person you can. You know, you hang around with some people, they make you the worst person you can. You hang around with other people, they make you a really good person, the best person you can be. So in our holy people, the ones we were thinking of, I think that we're seeing the characteristics of Christ shine through them. That's what I think is happening. That in these towards holy people, you see the characteristics of Christ shining through them. The holy person I think of, when I first knew her, um, I used to ring her in the morning, I could never get hold of her, and I used to think she, she must sleep late and shower long. When I got to know her properly, I understood actually she spends a large part of the morning in prayer. So these are people who spend time with, with God and have the characteristics of Christ. And again, this is not a comprehensive list, but what would those characteristics of Christ be? Well, being loving, being forgiving, being righteous, merciful, compassionate, gracious, lover of justice, living life abundantly. And as we see the characteristics of Christ, we are seeing the characteristics of God. As Michael Ramsey so famously said, God is Christ-like, and in God there is no unchristlikeness at all. So I want to argue, I suppose, that holiness is about God being present and about our being present to God. The more we can be in honest relationship with God, the holier we will become. When my kids were growing up, I mean, they're 30 and 26 now, so it doesn't really apply so much, but it always worried me who they spent their time with. They spend their time with this group of people, they could be a bit dodgy, really, because you know, they like to fit in, so they'd fit in with this group. Or they spent their time with this group of people, they had much better kind of characteristics. So you uh, acquire the characteristics of the people you hang out with, don't you? So really we're saying that you acquire the characteristics of Christ by spending time with Christ. And I wrote in the book, some Christians behave as if the task is to persuade God to be with them, but the delightful truth is that he is already present in the relationship. The problem is to be present ourselves. God is there always 
but where are we? And again, if we had time, that would be something I want you to think about. You know, because if the key thing we need to do is to spend time with God, why don't we do it more? If that's the absolute priority, why don't we do it? So as I had my conversations, I started to see that growing in holiness is about the risk of allowing Christ to interact with the truth of ourselves. No strings attached, nothing withheld. Now that sounds quite easy and straightforward, but we do not generally find it easy and straightforward. Certainly in my experience of listening to people, people do not find that easy. So I wanted to try and explore some of the reasons we find this such a challenge. And the sixth reflection in the book, it's actually the first one, is called Hiding from God. And I think this is a pivotal uh, issue. And I started thinking about this issue through an encounter I had many years ago. Um, I was going to Oxford for an ordination, not Helen's, some time before that. And uh, I travelled down from the northeast, a long journey. It was hot and tiring. It was a beautiful summer's day when we had summer's days. And I travelled down with a friend who'd gone off to buy something. And um, so I was sitting, you have to imagine me sitting in the middle of Oxford, right in the middle of the, of the city, in the middle of all the shoppers. And I'm sitting, I've got my eyes closed because I'm really tired. And a voice says, this is a real voice this time, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? I, I confess to you that I did not immediately open my eyes and try to evangelise this person, which is probably what I should have done. But I didn't. I kind of thought, well, I don't know anyone in the middle of Oxford. They can't be talking to me. Then I realised with a kind of sinking feeling I had a dog collar on. I thought they might be talking to me. And the voice came again, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? And my immediately conceived answer, in the light of me clearly being ordained, was, something, was going to be something like, of course not, I'm an Anglican. That's what actually came into my mind. Of course not, I'm an Anglican. But before delivering this unhelpful quip, um, by the grace of God, I opened my eyes and I saw this very old, toothless, very poor man sitting next to me. And he told me that he had once known the Lord Jesus Christ, that was his words, but he had done bad things and now he couldn't know him anymore. And I said to him, that's just not right, you know, because I've done bad things. I still do bad things, but you can go on knowing Jesus, you know, because he totally loves you and you're totally forgiven. Then my friend returned and we had to rush off to the ordination. But that man stayed in my mind and in my prayers, I must say. And I remembered him later when I was preparing a sermon on the healing of the ten lepers in Luke's Gospel. Because it seemed to me that his plea and mine, indeed the plea of all of us, needed to be the same as the lepers. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When Jesus saw the lepers and he heard their cry, he told them to go and show themselves to the priests. Now that would have been a very um, confusing and hurtful directive because you show yourself to the priest when you are healed. These lepers were not healed. But I suppose they had nothing to lose. So off they went. They were helpless and hopeless and they showed themselves and we know they were made clean. When we cry for mercy, as the lepers did, a similar trust and obedience is asked of us. Go and show yourself. Not in our case to the priest, but to God. We are asked to go and bring ourselves into God's presence just as we really are. And most of us don't find that very easy. We are not that keen to show to God, to others, or indeed to ourselves, the complex reality of what we are. We are just not prepared to face up to it. Of course, we all, being made in the image of God, have gifts and talents to offer, 
All of us do. I already see some people going, oh, not me, no, not me. All of us have gifts and talents because we're made in the image of God. Okay? And some of our responsibility is to own those gifts and talents and to use them. Okay? Because some people just don't own their gifts and talents and don't use them. But also we need to bring those things which are not our gifts and talents to God. I think that many of us spend our lives trying to play our strong cards, the things that we're best at. But, you know, if we only ever do the things that we're really good at, and you find this amongst clergy quite a lot. I mean, there are clergy in my diocese who, wherever they go, have to build a building. It's weird. Like, whatever church they go to, whatever parish, they, they always have to build a building. That's not true, of course. It's the clergy person that needs to build the building, not the community they're serving. So sometimes if we just play our strong hands, we can become arrogant, we can become self-dependent, and we can become a bit intolerant of gifted others, ungifted others. There's a wonderful quotation in Doug Hammerskull's book, Journal, Markings. He says this, Better than other people, that at least you are. But more often, why should you be better than other people? Either you are what you can be, or you're not, and that's just like other people. Just say that again. Better than other people, sometimes he says, that at least you are. But most often, why should you be better than other people? Either you are what you can be, or you're not, and that's just like other people. It's really interesting, that, isn't it? Because we live in a world that's so full of comparisons, isn't it? Who are you better than? Who are you worse than? This is the success ladder, isn't it? Where am I on these ladders of success? It's really nothing to do with that. God wants us to offer him our strong and our weak hands. What, in fact, we are invited to show to God, to bring consciously into God's presence, is the totality of our being. Not just our giftedness, but that which fills us with despair, that which fills us with shame, that which fills us with fear, that which fills us with panic, and that which fills us with frustration. All of the above we're asked to bring to the God who loves us. Mother Mary Clare of the Sisters of the Love of God in Oxford, she was the mother superior of this order. This is a contemplative order of nuns. So this is the mother superior of a silent order of nuns. In my book, that's pretty holy. Okay? Pretty holy. Um, she writes this. When you go before God in prayer, you cannot leave anything behind. You carry in your heart every person, every incident, every thought, every feeling you have ever had. And as you lay yourself before God, so you bring all the mess as well. My prayer, she said, is really just one sentence. Here I am, God, what a mess. That's a brilliant prayer. Here I am, God, what a mess. And if she can pray it, I'm sure we can all pray it. Here I am, God, what a mess. If we hide from the unacceptable parts of our lives and we refuse to take them with us in prayer to God, then God cannot work with us and gradually change us into his likeness. Mother Mary Clare's comments suggest that inevitably we cannot leave bits of ourselves behind when we pray. Though what we often do, of course, is fail to acknowledge the reality of this to ourselves. If we're not careful, we try to offer a kind of edited version of ourselves to God in prayer. That's mad, isn't it? Absolutely mad. 
Our failure to believe enough in God's love to entrust the mess of our real selves to him is a serious barrier to the joy of knowing him better. Really serious barrier. And I've seen that in lots and lots of people I work with, and it is a real barrier to growing in holiness too. Helen mentioned that I was a counsellor. I've been a counsellor for a very long time. Listen to a lot of people. And what I often find is that people can't pray about the stuff they're talking to me about. I'm saying to them, for goodness sake, pray about this. And they find it very difficult. Uh, I remember one client many years ago, having sorted things out, she came to me very proudly and said, I prayed about it all now that I've got it sorted out. Of course, I had to be pleased. Actually, I'd have been much more pleased if she'd been praying about it before she got it sorted out. That's what I really longed for her to do. I wanted her to be able to offer the mess to God. So very often people in a mess, and that's most of us most of the time, feel they can't pray because they can't say the words that they think God wants to hear. They kind of think they've got to pray to God in a particular way. So in fact, what I want to say is the biggest danger you're in is not praying. To fail to be in conversation with the God who loves you is the biggest danger. So we have to find ways to pray. Can I give you a silly example then? Um, so, for example, you may really, um, somebody may really have hurt you very badly and you might dislike them very much, but you know you should forgive them, okay? Because God says you should forgive them. And you know that if you forgive them, that will be good for them and it will be good for you. So you could pray that. Please, God, you know, do these things for me. But if the truth is that you absolutely hate this person and you really don't want to forgive them and you really can't let them get away with it, which is what you feel is going to happen, then how can you pray this prayer? What I want to tell you is pray both prayers. Pray this is what you long to be like, but actually my reality is this, God. But don't not pray. Do you see what I'm saying? Don't not pray because that's when we're at most risk. Trust God with the mess and the muddle, and the inconsistency of ourselves. And I started to pray like that because I read about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. What did Jesus do in the Garden of Gethsemane? He prayed as he felt, didn't he? He longed that God would take the cup from him. Of course, who wouldn't? He, that's what he wanted. He wanted that cup to pass him by. And so he asked for that because that's what he wanted. But nonetheless, he was able to do what God wanted. And he said, yet not my will, but yours be done. He was able in these hugely terrifying circumstances to trust himself absolutely to the God who loved him. So the challenge then is to learn to pray as we are. And this is closely linked to our ability to accept ourselves as we are, not as the idealized people we might imagine ourselves to be. So how am I doing for time? Okay, I think. So God is in us already, and it is we who have to learn to live creatively with God, because God is there, it's we've got the problem. This takes some considerable practice for most of us. We cannot make ourselves holy, whatever effort we expend. What we need to be is as open as we can be to the holiness which is within each of us. We need to allow God to give himself to us, even though we are not worthy. And through the experience of unconditional love and forgiveness, we will be changed. The success of the venture 
is that we will become our real best selves. And this involves a different journey for each of us. And I think it's very, one thing I've learned is how important it is to be tolerant of each other's journey. You know, we can sometimes be so smug about something we can do that somebody else is struggling with. But you bet there's something they can do that you should be struggling with. Do you know what I mean? Because each of our journey is our own individual journey. I was reminded of, um, I used to love when I was a child, Alice in Wonderland, which is always worrying, really. Um, and I was particularly attracted in Alice in Wonderland to the Caucasus race. I don't know if you know that. It's a race that you don't know when it starts and you don't know when it finishes. Okay? And so nobody knows who's won. And so this is very confusing. Pretty anarchic, really. Quite worrying liking that as a child, but I loved it. When they all crowd round asking the dodo who's won, he finally, after much thought, pronounces that everybody has won and all must have prizes. Everybody has won and all must have prizes. And that's exactly what the Christian life is like that we've all won and we're all entitled to the prizes that God has for us, the love and forgiveness and holiness of God. And that's not so difficult to understand, is it? Because I have a number of very close friends and, in, and each relationship with them is unique. They're all my friends, but each relationship is unique. Some of the things I find difficult with one, I don't find difficult with another. Some of the things which I delight in in one, I certainly don't find in another. So you know in your own human relationships that each relationship is unique and each one of our relationships with God is unique and we need to be very compassionate, aware and supportive with each other as we try and encourage each of us to grow in holiness and not be smug and judgmental, which is what I find sometimes happens in churches. You'll have heard this before, but it's very telling. On his deathbed... Rabbi Zushka was asked what he thought life beyond the grave would be like. He didn't know. But he said this, I do know one thing, he said. When I get to heaven, I won't be asked why I wasn't David. And I won't be asked why I wasn't Moses. But I may very well be asked why I wasn't Zushka. So the task is for us to become our real best self. That's a different task for each of us. The road to holiness is a long one. It will, of course, take us more than a lifetime. We're not going to get there before we die. We're going to be holy. Struggling on life's way is inevitable through loss, through pain, through thwarted desires, through accidents and joys, successes and failures. But struggling put into the hands of God is constructive, not destructive. That's a really key thing. That struggling put into the hands of our loving, forgiving God is constructive, not destructive. Of course, we need God's grace, and that is assured. But I think we also need the help and support of wise others, friends and spiritual directors and people to walk alongside us to help us reflect on the lives we're living. So growing in holiness is not achieved by our effort or our self-control. It is achieved through a gift of God to us and our humble and stumbling acceptance of it. I just want to finish with this poem because I think it powerfully depicts the way to holiness. And it's, it's by Athanagoras, who is an ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople. It goes as follows. I have waged this war against myself for many years. It was terrible. But now I am disarmed. 
I am no longer frightened of anything because love banishes fear. I am disarmed of the need to be right and to justify myself by disqualifying others. I am no longer on the defensive holding on to my riches. I just want to welcome and to share. I don't hold on to my ideas and projects. If someone shows me something better, no, I shouldn't say better but good, I accept them without regrets. I no longer seek to compare. What is good, true and real is always for me the best. That is why I have no fear. When we are disarmed and dispossessed of self, if we open our hearts to the God-man who makes all things new, then he takes away past hurts and reveals a new time where everything is possible. This place where everything is possible is indeed the place of holiness. It is the peace of discovering that we can be at home in ourselves and that God is and always has been at home there with us. It is a coming home to what we have always dimly known was there, what we have glimpsed in holy others and what we have yearned for and struggled to achieve ourselves. Thank you. I said to Helen that I thought that um, I have to say that in a norm I, I can't remember the last time I spoke for 45 minutes uninterrupted. Um, it's been quite hard work because normally I would speak and then we'd do something and then we'd talk together. So it's quite an odd way of me working actually. So what I'd like you to do now, because I, I, you know, you're welcome in a minute to ask questions, but I hope it's not going to be just asking questions of me, as if I'm the expert on holiness, which I hope you know I'm not. So it may be that you want to make comments, or um, other people might be able to answer the questions that you ask. But what I'd like you to do, just for maybe three or four minutes, is in twos or threes, just to respond to what I've said. Um, how did it make you think? What did it make you think? Did it make sense? Did it not make sense? Okay, and then we'll have a, a discussion together. If I can draw us together just for the last uh, eight minutes or so. And it was very important for Judy that we did have that time to engage um, in that struggle ourselves rather than just um, hear what Judy has to say from her very rich experience. It's, it's wonderful to hear that. But if I could uh, invite you to... to um, put forward any questions who would like to, or comments. Is, the, uh, is your bit about the Eastern Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox patriarchy, is that in your book? Yes, it is. About yeah. yeah, thank you. Yes, do buy it because it's in my book. But it's just a wonderful piece, I thought. It was like God had given that to me. You know, I was trying to find an ending to the book and. Um, I actually saw it in a Jean, Jean Vanier book, and I thought, that's it. You know, and I, had to, I struggled really hard to get permission to use it, but I just thought it was just exactly right, so thank you for that. I'm with an observation, I think, that for me, the point you make, so I thought about the transition between when you see God outside as something external you pray to, and the transition to looking at that as something inward, 
I think that, that to me is, is probably the biggest challenge because if you get to that point, um, it does begin to change the way that you perceive the world around you, yeah. relationships. And um, that movement um, is, is certainly not an easy movement. No. It isn't. And I must say, I find it a ch- You know, when I'm, struggling with some- when I'm struggling with someone who's driving me nuts, I'm not always the most patient person, I always remember, but God is in this person. You know, God's not just outside this person, God is in this person. That really changes how I, how I then deal with the situation. It's quite interesting. Thank you for that. Um, I, I was thinking, you never stop learning who you are. No, you don't. It goes on, you know, however old you are, yeah. you learn, keep learning more and more. Yeah. Well, I'm just into my early 60s, and I have to say, it's like I'm wondering what I've done with my 60 years and how much, how much I have misunderstood and how much only now I am beginning to understand. You know, so you're absolutely right. The struggling kind of continues and continues and will continue beyond, I'm sure, the, the end of our lives. One of the things that Judy and I were just reflecting on was how whether perhaps in modern life in the last 50 years maybe, it's become easier to hide from God um, and to avoid that struggle to become holy because our lives are lived on such a a bigger canvas with so many more complex um, relationships and something about being holy is perhaps being rooted and persevering. Um, and whether modern life mitigates against that and makes it more difficult. Yeah. I, f- I found it interesting when I was doing the exercise myself about who did, I, did it make any sense to ask the question, do I know anyone towards holy, that the two people I actually found were people who'd been really rooted. You know, what, one really rooted all their life in Durham City, the other one actually spending a great deal of his ministry in the same place. So I thought that was quite, import- quite interesting. Um, I think we are very dispersed. It is very difficult to be known sometimes. And so, so to me, the calling for the church is to be this place where you can learn and grow in holiness, this place where you are known. You know, to be a community. I mean, holiness isn't about being told what to do. It's about being a community in which you can fail and be forgiven. You know, a community in which you receive unconditional love, that you learn to respect and see the gifts in others and you help them to grow. You know, I mean, that's the challenge because we desperately, desperately need the church. We've always needed the church to do that. But in our modern context, we hugely need the church to be this place where you can be known and know and where you can, you can fail and be forgiven and grow. You know what I mean? And I think many churches, I'm afraid, are not that. But that's what we need to be. It's an interesting reflection how in um, uh, we're aware that cathedral ministry is one that is growing but also conversely perhaps that's a place where people are allowed to just be and not demands aren't made of them that might be made in parish churches and I wonder whether that allows then that conversation with God to happen or whether again that's a place of safety your reference to the mess Mm. and also um, that everybody is unique. Everybody is unique. Yeah. And they've got a different mess. Yeah, and a different relationship with God because of that as well. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. I, I wonder if others sometimes have my experience, I've got older than you, um, and sometimes I feel like I've run out of prayer. Mm. And that something else has <laughs> happened, which... Um, I do have a sense of prayerfulness in 
all kinds of situations and circumstances. But if I try or have tried to pray, I, I just I just start spinning. I've no idea what's going on in my head. I don't know whether I'm supposed to be talking in English, you know, using syntax or Mm. using words or, mm. or just sitting still. Yeah. That's one experience. The other experience I have is that uh, although I feel comfortably uh, a member of the Christian church, uh, a Christian, I do actually find personal Jesus a bit baffling because I can't quite identify. I don't know how to think of him. I don't know how to think of him as a as a, a really live character in a novel, or somebody I knew, or somebody I hadn't known, or seen in a photograph. And the only references I have to him are scriptural references, and they don't seem, for me, to, to make up the sort of personality that I could then address. And I wonder, therefore, sorry, this is really my question, I wonder whether when you talk to people who are either not part of any religious institution or whatever, and certainly not be atheists or something like mm. that, not aggressive. So, is there not a great deal in common I mean, with the idea of wholeness, finding mm. yourself? Yeah. yeah. I mean, first of, first of all, I'd like to say that um, although my book is, this book is not about silence and withdrawal and so on, that that's a really legitimate way of prayer. You, you know what I mean? For many people, that is their way of prayer. It just wasn't primarily mine. That's in my shadow to pray like that. So to pray without words, to, to go away from people is exactly okay, isn't it? That's, that's a really good way of praying. Um, so what was, the, what, was your, your, what was the question? The, the, fi the final question. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, no, I, won't, I don't think I'd maybe get into that because we've got probably about a minute. But, um, of course, um, you know, I believe that God's in our whole creation. So, so there are people who, who have characteristics of holiness who don't come anywhere near the Christian church. And there are people in the Christian church who have very few characteristics of holiness, I have to say. I mean, my, my job is to work across the whole diocese all the time, and there's some absolutely fa fabulous people in our churches, but there's some absolutely difficult people that you wonder, you know, how, how have they been in the church so, so long, you, you know, and, and exhibit some of the characteristics which they exhibit. So, so I think that would be my answer. Mm. I think we'd better leave it there for time, but I'm sure you'd be happy to happy, continue yes. chatting afterwards if people want to come and have a chat with Judy. If I could just let you know, the next Sunday forum will be on the 3rd of July. That's with Patrick Woodhouse on Etty Hillisum, A Life Transformed. And the next cathedral floor event is Resurrection, Christianity and the Body with Paula Gooder on Wednesday, June the 15th. Information about that in the leaflets here. Or you can find uh, more information online. Or if you give your details at the end of this session, we'll put you on a mailing list. And books uh, will be available. Struggling, um, Struggling to be Holy is available to buy now if, if you'd like to. But can we just thank Judy again and thank you all for your contribution. Thank you.